I'm Jacqueline, the therapist, and I discuss real problems with real people, no small talk. I live in a city where plant medicine is actually a normal part of the dialogue as a use of, uh, or sorry, as a method of healing. Now, I'm reading a book actually right now called Supernatural by Graham Hancock that discusses the history of these medicines such as ayahuasca and igoba and different cultures such as the Peruvians and Brazilians have actually even used these medicines as a rite of passage. They're very, they're much more normalized in those cultures versus the US, which still views drugs like that as something very taboo. Now, can they really help us heal deeper trauma? I don't know. I've never personally experienced it. There's another argument out there with, uh, in, science, in the science world that says that hallucinogenics actually can help us access alternate dimensions versus experiencing the drug and what it does to the brain as an illusion. Now, the thing that I'm curious about is, like anything else, it's only a temporary experience. Can something like this actually help shift our consciousness on a deeper level? I don't know. Today I'm interviewing a man named Nick who's an artist, and in an effort for him to become more connected to his work, he started using ayahuasca regularly. When Nick walked in the door, I noticed he had this kind of moppish, curly, almost wild hair that gave off the vibe that he was very carefree and less concerned with uh, the little things, while at the same time there was some kind of awareness of what was happening. It wasn't as if he just had, had no look in the mirror. He, he had some awareness of his style and his look and, 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 and reveled in that in some way. As I interviewed Nick and got to know him more, I would say this definitely mirrored or reflected his personality. So here you go. I hope you enjoy my interview with Nick. So Nick, you're an artist, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. I'm a painter uh-huh. and uh, I also am a musician and I also do a comedy show with my dad. Oh, you do? Yeah, called Wing Dad. Okay. Where he is my, uh, he tries to be my wingman. Okay. And he kind of messes it up much, most of the time. Uh-huh. But, uh, but mostly I'm a painter. As wingmans usually do. As wingmans usually do. <laughs> That's part of the thing. Yeah. 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 So why do you, you have like a few different creative outlets that you'd like to earn money off all of them or? Well, I mean, the, the main way I earn money is through portrait painting. Uh-huh. And that's uh, people commission me uh-huh. to do like, you know, usually their kids or their husband or something yeah. like that. And that's good money they're you know expensive paintings and uh, then I sell a fair amount of my own work um, out of my studio and uh, yeah the music and the wing dad we're hoping to make money off that but you know those industries are kind of hard to make money in these days so it sounds like the music and the comedy thing are your passion and the paintings the money yeah although the paintings probably passion too the portraits are you know money and I've been I was doing a lot of ayahuasca ceremonies from 2012 through the end of 2015. I don't do it anymore okay. just because uh, I sort of moved on from it. But it was really incredible. Wait, and so ayahuasca is, can you just be a little more specific? Ayahuasca is like that Peruvian medicinal drink and it comes in a tea and it's like, you know, usually about, it's like about a shot glass mm-hmm. and it tastes really like kind of gnarly like if you combine coffee and chewing tobacco with like pumpernickel bread and uh, i don't know like uh, um something coconut water and it's like it really you really drink it and you gag kind of and then you sit in a darkened room and then after about a half an hour the effects start to come on and then the shaman starts to kind of whistle a little bit like they go like and then, are they whistling like at you or just in they're whistling in the... into the room and, okay. it, and it's dark and you know it's a formal ceremony so you, yeah. you're requested to sit in your place and not like move around or talk mm-hmm. or like go like you know massage someone or you know you get up and go to the bathroom or you can go outside and smoke a cigarette or whatever but you're supposed to even if you're really going through a hard time like if you're throwing up or you're moaning or you're groaning and you're like on your hands and knees, like all that's fine as long as you try to do it within a sort of respectable uh, way. So you're not like um, upsetting the other people in the room. So what prompted you to do ayahuasca? I I had been painting um, 
I've been painting since I was like around 19 years old and um, uh, about 15 years ago I had a studio in New York City and I did mushrooms one night and uh, uh, I went into my studio and my girlfriend at the time was a painter too, a great painter and in my our studio it was my studio and it was our living space and we had both of our paintings up and on the mushrooms I could see that like her paintings are had a lot of energy and freedom mm -hmm. and mine looked like someone like was like like uh, inhibited or like, kind of uh -huh. killing the energy in it okay and that was like a really like, traumatic because this is my work and I saw it you know I saw it because yeah. the mushrooms and I was like oh fuck and then I thought okay well I'm just not gonna do mushrooms and look at my paintings I'm trying not to destroy my sense of equilibrium yeah and then about had you had you done any drugs before that yeah or? when I was a kid yeah. we used to take the bus in from New Jersey to Central Park and buy acid and we were like 16 <laughs> years old and we'd trip on oh, acid just a bus ride of acid yeah and we'd we'd sit in <laughs> the sheep's meadow you know where the guys <laughs> throw the frisbees so we'd sit right so the frisbees went over our heads like that mm -hmm. and we just like drink beer and smoke pot and trip our nuts off and then sometimes and and these were like like we were like new jersey kids we weren't that sophisticated yeah or sophisticated at all we were just kind of goofballs and then we would but we kind of got interested in art and then we'd go up to the metropolitan museum of art and look at the the paintings we're tripping and it was like we loved it wait so isn't acid um like the chemical form they say they compare it to the chemicalized version of ayahuasca no well, yeah, I mean, these are strong hallucinogens. So you got acid, mushrooms, peyote, mescaline, uh -huh. and um, ayahuasca. But ayahuasca is different because I think, you know, I never threw, well, I never threw up on ayahuasca, but most people do. Yeah. And it's called purging. And yeah. um, <clears throat> I think peyote and San Pedro make people throw up too. Uh, and they're, they're, uh, ayahuasca is a combination of two plants. Yeah, and, and and so when you were doing it, how how often were you doing it, and then what happened? Yeah, so what happened was so then so then about twelve years after this experience where I saw my that I didn't appreciate the energy in my paintings. Yeah, I I got to the point where I started to feel that my paintings had a lot of life life and energy. I had really dedicated myself to painting a lot, and then I started to see the colors that I saw when I was sixteen. And at this point, I was 40, so it was like really weird that I started to remember the acid colors. So I thought, all right, I'm going to get acid and go in my painting, my painting studio and work and see what, you know, I'll fearlessly look at the paintings now because I think that they'll look all right and I'll, I'll like what I see. And then right at that moment, my friend said to me, like the next day, she's like, oh, I went to an ayahuasca ceremony. I said, what's that? And she told me that it was like, this formal ceremony where the shaman sings yeah, the whole time yeah. and it's like based in this tradition peruvian yeah. tradition so that felt safer and i yeah. it, it's not that it felt safer i felt safe enough taking the acid it just felt so much more um structured and interesting yeah. and so yeah. much more in line with what i was looking to experience and to learn as trying a, to get into yourself versus out of yourself almost trying to um yeah, try well trying to trying to learn something, yeah. uh, something ancient. Like that's one of the things that happens is that, yes, you drink ayahuasca, but also <clears throat> you're listening to songs that have are are a thousand years yeah. old. Yeah, there's big there's ancient tradition. There's ancient tradition. And, but so so when you when you did the ayahuasca then your result afterwards so was... so what happened was I, I i did the ayahuasca ceremony and immediately i was like okay this is incredible the singing appealed to me the visions were amazing the whole thing the whole thing uh -huh. the structure of the ceremony the, the formality of it the fact that we weren't just like fucking around and like partying but we were like it was like a spiritual almost um strict situation and then <clears throat> After a few months, you know, uh, I become friends with the shaman, and, and he said to me, you know, hey, you want to take some ayahuasca? You want to? I'll give you a bottle of ayahuasca. You can go in your studio and paint on it. And I was like, yeah, this is like this is exactly what I've been looking for. And 
So had you been doing any kind of like uh, spiritual work before you did yeah. ayahuasca? Like you were doing meditation and yoga. Or... <clears throat> meditation, yoga. I've been doing yoga since you know for for fifteen years. At that point. Yeah, and uh-huh. going to therapy, psychotherapy, uh-huh. and okay. also group therapy. And uh-huh. uh, my mom's a therapist, so like a lot of introspection and my work yeah. in general. Like I did a series of paintings in two thousand five that were based on internet porn. Okay. And that was like that was like a big like moment for me because you know I my friends and I, I don't know we weren't like porn dudes we just you know maybe we in college we would like look at playboys and stuff but we weren't people who looked at porn and then the high-speed internet comes out and everyone's all like looking at porn but so. was that the work that you found flat or that you no said no that no that was before? already this was had it happened before that, that okay porn so work. okay so then you so you took the ayahuasca yeah you started taking it regularly, started painting, then you came out with the internet Yeah, porn no, 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 the, the porn, the ayahuasca was 2012, the porn, okay. I, I sort of, I'm confusing the matter, okay. but we'll save, we'll save, we'll save the porn for later? Yeah, okay. yeah, so, so you started <coughs> painting using the ayahuasca. So I started painting using the ayahuasca and immediately it was like, it was like just this incredible, like freedom and access to things that, you know, I had... I had a spiritual practice. Sorry, um, I never cough, and now <coughs> I'm being interviewed. I'm having like a coughing attack. Yeah, it's showing of yourself. That's what I always think. Like, right, the throat chakra, self-expression. God, you know, and <coughs> and it makes me think about how you said, like, with your your paintings, that you're having trouble, like, fully expressing what was within, right? Yeah. Which, in essence, the ayahuasca brought you to, and it's funny that now you're talking about it, and it's kind of like cutting you, right, like cutting you off. Yeah. So then it makes me think that some of the resistance is like still there. It's like, totally there. Yeah. So why do you think it's totally there? Um. Do you like it? Do I like what? The resistance. Uh, I think that it's a, it's probably a safety strategy. You know, um, mm-hmm. I've had asthma my whole life, mm. and you know, in my in my painting and in my music and also in my life in general, I I sort of I don't know. I'm inhibited, you know. Yeah. And I hate it. Um, I wish I weren't. Yeah. I'm a free spirit, yeah. and I'm a free thinker. And most people think of me as a relaxed person. Yeah. But I guess I inhibit myself. I don't come out fully. A friend of mine, she says, uh, what did she say? Loose on the outside, tight on the inside. <laughs> that's, that's how I am too. Yeah, that's so, so interesting. Yeah. I think that's funny. And then her partner is tight on the outside, loose on the inside. But externally, yeah. it looks different when they present yeah. to the world. Yeah. But, you know, for my myself... Um, like, I don't know. I find... Because like, I get that resistance as well. And it's like I find that there's some part of me somehow that like it's like feeling kind of you know in my it's like something that keeps me like in my own world and like it keeps it for me that sometimes I like that like Uh it makes me feel like in control and a little like like I have this other thing like this Mm -hmm. other world like that nobody can touch yeah you know and it's like I don't I don't want to Sometimes I don't want to give that up. Like it's too much to like be out there in that way. It's like like an abundance of feelings and mm-hmm. and that's just like it like it, it it scares me. It's scary, and I think, I mean, I I do get there in my work and in my life. You know, I've definitely made love and painted and performed on stage and gotten to the place that mm-hmm. we want to get. Um, and I feel like we can't be there all the time. So, yeah, yeah it's... it's. Can I, you or can't you? I, I don't know. I well, mean, I don't think we were trained to, right? Maybe you can. I, I don't know. I think of it like a marathon, not a sprint. So yeah. I like to pick my spots and have the energy to do it, you know. Um, but I guess, yeah. But then, I mean, that just seems contradictory to what you just said because you were you kept doing this stuff because you wanted to be free and be out of yourself. yeah. And then you don't like the resistance, and then you just said, "Oh, but I think of it as a marathon." You know, so it's like then all of a sudden it, you just made it sound like you were okay with it. Yeah. Well, well, your question was really interesting. You said, "Can't we or can we?" Yeah. And maybe we can. You know, maybe maybe as we as we open up our energy and we work on our energy body and clear our chakras, that we can be there all the time in a passionate, fully expressed place I think there's another 
aspect that comes in with me is that I'm an older brother, uh-huh. so I tend to hold space, and uh, I feel like holding space at times is taking a back seat or being quiet or being yeah. calm and, and letting other people have their expression. Yeah. And you don't want to take up the... You don't want to quote unquote be the star, like take it away from your older brother yeah. in that way. Yeah. yeah. So Why? What is what is your um, relationship like with your older brother? No, I, I'm an older brother. Oh, I thought you said you yeah. have an older. I'm brother. an older brother. Sorry, ah, sort of like okay. yeah. hold space, and I definitely, I definitely want to be a star, and I definitely in my life have sort of been. I've been mm-hmm. on stage. I've had art openings. You know, uh, I've been like popular and focused on, and. And I also think that a lot of the time I I like to be the calm, quiet one who's just there and allowing the people around me to be louder or more rambunctious. Yeah. So I guess I guess that's one of the reasons why things like painting or sports uh-huh. or areas where you like have permission to fully be uh, expressed or like wild, they seem safer places to me to be that way. Yet, you, it's, I mean, I challenge when you say safer, because then you just said that you couldn't, like, we're talking about, when I say this, obviously, you're successful at what you do, but we're talking about a very deep layer of, like, feeling free in that, right? Like, uh-huh. it, it almost, in essence, doesn't matter what the external looks like, like, if you know, going in, that mm-hmm. there's some, like, resistance, or, yeah. you know, maybe another person looking at your work wouldn't see that, but you see it. Yeah, I know? see it. Yeah. And so then, it, it's like you said it was safe, but then still is hard for you to get there yeah it's it is it's it's i i think i could i think i could definitely improve my um flow with the whole thing i think it's i think it's really cool that i can be calm and quiet and just hold space and then i think sometimes more spontaneity and more expression would be even better yeah for me to be able to do that more and one of the things that frustrates me tremendously in painting is not being able to be as free as I want to be. Well, that's the point, right? Like of the arts, it's like full expression of mm-hmm. our, you know, deepest selves, right? Like that's like yeah. that's the goal of an artist, almost it to is. like put that. Yeah. Yeah. What I what I notice with me, and I see it in my work, is that, you know, it's like you you know you're on a dance floor and you feel self conscious and you're kind of like going like you know dancing but you're also sort of I don't know you're, you're not really expressing yourself and then there's like and then you can be like okay and then you can start like going crazy and then yeah. it's kind of spazzy yeah. and somewhere in between that is something that's really connected to the music and yeah. the movement and also fully expressed and I know in my work that I tend to go from an inhibited place to a really spazzy place to try to break out of the inhibited place Yeah. and somewhere along the way there's that like little sliver of being in the the pocket mm-hmm. and um so i wish i could be there more yeah totally. so did you feel really inhibited growing up mm-hmm. yeah i did i mm-hmm. did you know i i had uh i had asthma growing up mm-hmm. and asthma has like been linked to like a stifled cry yeah. i didn't cry i saw a kid crying when i was in fifth when i was at, sorry in kindergarten and it just was so unappealing to me i decided i was never going to cry you know, it's so funny because I gotta say, I look at you and I see sad, sadness. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> thanks. Like, <laughs> 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 yeah, I'm sad. I'm, yeah. I, I'm sad. Yeah. And my people always say my paintings look sad. And I hate that. I'd rather look happy and have my paintings look happy. So even when you express yourself fully, it's still not the way you want, right? It's not, you, you want something else. So it sounds like no matter, no matter what, you don't win does feel that way from time to time yeah and i like sad songs but <laughs> music, uh, melancholy music listen well, yeah. I, well yeah. it's not quite melancholy but i listen to willie nelson and bob dylan and Joni mitchell and mazzy star and leonard Cohen, and these are the the people who i gravitate toward most and and, and somehow it connects in and then it soothes my soul uh, but I, i'm sad i'm really really sad and so what are you I, sad about uh, I don't know, you know, I um, I was told by, uh, did you meet Logan? 
he came to um, the med after the meditation. You know, he's a, maybe I met him at the end. Anyway, I've done a couple of healing sessions mm -hmm. with him, and he said that I have some pretty heavy past life karma. Mm -hmm. Said that I uh, t I killed I killed myself in a past life. Mm. So, mm -hmm. so you believe in past lives? I neither believe in past lives or don't. I, I at this point in my life, I have no idea. I don't believe or not believe in anything. I've got no idea what's going on anymore. So, okay, if you will, right? Yeah. If you want, yeah. and if you don't want to, we don't have to. Yeah. But I just wondered if you would just like maybe want to close your eyes for a second, take a deep breath in, and let it all out through your mouth. And then I would just ask you again, what what do you think you're sad about? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes into my mind when you ask the question is it it feels like I have my heritage in a way, you know? What uh, do you mean? My grandparents, my dad's parents' house, you know, I spent a lot of time with them when I was a kid, and it seemed sad there. Um, what about it? Uh, it seemed in inhibited. My grandfather was cranky. My grandmother was depressed. Uh, yeah. They had money. So I guess that wasn't too, that aspect of it wasn't sad. Yeah, but also but it, studies have been shown, yeah. proven that, you know, how much money does it take for happiness? Actually very little, right? Our minds confuse yeah. it because we live in a very material world. It makes things easier, but it doesn't make things happier. And it always seemed like it was November and it was, the sun was going down at 4.40 p.m. and the, my football team was losing and it was Sunday <laughs> and I had homework to do and... This. Wait, but I'm curious more about like your your. You said you mentioned one of your your one of your grandparents was depressed. You yeah, said. yeah. And the other one was. They were both depressed. They were both depressed. My grandpa was cranky, and my grandma was depressed. And what about your parents? My mom's pretty cheerful. Uh huh. And is it, is she cheerful and like the? No. I'm fine. I got this. Everything's no, good. No, 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 no. She's, she's like a naturally like. She's sort optimistic. of perfect. You know, she's okay. she's really expressed. She's really honest with her emotions and always says when she's annoyed or upset mm -hmm. with something, and is also like just pretty. She likes fun. She's very pretty. She's she's ba she seems balanced. She's yeah. balanced. Yeah. And my dad's quite neurotic and anxious and gets depressed and is also a very optimistic fellow more so he's sunnier and, and happier than his parents were yeah yeah well you know i mean i'm sure that you've read this that trauma stored in the dna trauma stored in the yeah. dna no yeah. i didn't know that yeah it's cool yeah so you know oftentimes you know okay well maybe you know this or not i don't know since your mother's therapist but um psychoanalytically what happens to children as well as we don't have boundaries right mm -hmm. and so anything a parent is feeling or not feeling gets projected straight onto the child and children are like sponges yeah. so we literally suck it up and take it on so then the trauma can change you know the chemicals the chemistry in your brain which then gets stored in your dna and gets passed on from generation to generation so like you know chances are your grandparents were depressed probably their grandparents were depressed yeah. you know and and i mean depression can come in many ways right like we can externally look happy but inside be completely tortured and very sad right so it's hard to you know sometimes people might say oh that person's not but really they yeah. are you know and um so then it, it makes me think like you know well probably your father you know if he's if he was feeling neurotic was it your grandparents from your father's side or your mother's side? yeah it was from my father's side and they were you know ashkenazi jews from eastern europe and you know poland yeah and, i mean uh, latvia so there was you know some pretty serious some shit down. history down there yeah, yeah. over there and, yeah and and then I just imagine like you know my therapist says depression is repression of anger. Yeah. So I'm gonna push down all those feelings right, and then it's so exhausting. <laughs> We're just tired all the time, you know. And then it just sounds like your father, right, took on the kind of like frustration or like worry and the fear and all the other stuff that comes as you're you know um, uh, dealing with when you're experiencing whatever traumatic experience, right? Then these are normal processes of having this experience right but then your father took on the stuff that his parents didn't want to feel mm -hmm. and so then that makes sense to you right like in essence you're feeling the stuff beneath but then like you're still pushing it down yeah fine well, yeah good. <laughs> i mean it's you know it's yeah 
it's no big deal. It's no big deal. I'm. I mean, I'm also a happy guy. I've always had it like yeah, a I'm lot not of friends that. and yeah. people say that I, I can bring light into a room and all these things. I I I do that. I'm 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 sad, you know. And uh, I think people. Uh, I've noticed that people cry around around me a lot. So maybe they feel safe to cry. Maybe yeah. You. Maybe some yeah. ways they do. I'm compassionate and I'm not judgmental, you know, in that way. Yeah. And um, maybe there's a graceful part of it, you know, and um. Uh, an honest part of it yeah and I think people are sad it's sad it's tough to be human it's I mean this is part of the human experience like even when you I, I think all emotions are uh, coexisting everything's happening at once even if you win an Oscar there's also you will experience sadness about like that experience going away or uh-huh. then it's no longer gold you know like right. there's loss in that as yeah. well so you know it's both imagine an incredibly happy moment and then sad and then also maybe fear like what what are the expectations of me next right like all of this is encompassing mm-hmm. the experience but certainly especially I think in American culture <clears throat> there's the we should only be happy mm-hmm. about it and there's a lot of judgment upon like sadness and they, and so we we push it down right the American way is like I'm fine I got you you yeah. know like anything I can do for you to make it okay you know why are you sad like don't be and um so I feel like we're just we're used to like just let me push it away push it away but then I just wonder okay two things the first is that like the pushing away that in essence is causing like what resists what we resist persists you know so then it's like coming up there tenfold because we're still like kicking it away and the other thing that came up when you were talking is that um well, maybe you're carrying some sadness that isn't yours. And, yeah. uh, you know, part of uh, stepping into full adulthood, and when I say that, what I mean is, like, for me, what I consider being a full adult is, like, truly living in my own body, being present for my experience, not reactionary based on my past experiences. Okay, that's really hard to do unless you're aware of how you're reactionary, right? And so if I'm used to... For example, you know, maybe I would, you know, my father's really controlling, right? So sometimes that's like a dynamic that I'll go to, like, I just want to get really controlling about something, you know, time. Okay, we'll just use that. But then really what it is, is like, I'm scared everything's not going to be okay. But sometimes when I sit with that, that's not even true either. Like, that's actually not my authentic voice. It's just like the conditioned childhood pattern. But to let that go feels like a loss of identity, right? But when I do, if it's something I choose to let go, right? But I have to be conscious of it first to even, mm-hmm. to even, you know, make the choice to shift that. Then I can sit and maybe really experience, like fully take in how I'm experiencing whatever is happening. Like that's what I consider like an adult. Right, right. You know, and I just wonder if like there's something you get off of the identity of even like pushing that down or even like the the attachment to your family right because it's kind of like the way you know how to be and feel you know that keeps us keeps the bond mm. you know yeah. even even though in some other cultures like i know they have this um one of my friends i forget where she's from it's uh i i want to say she's i'm not even gonna say because i don't want to get it wrong but um that in and she's very spiritual that they that when a child becomes 18 they cut the relationship with the parents and they're no longer supposed to have contact with them Mm -hmm. because it really inhibits their growth Mm -hmm. of becoming an adult yeah which i can see i mean that's harsh but it makes sense actually Yeah. yeah Yeah, I've thought of that from time to time. I'm very close with my parents, and not to say that you can't be close with your parents. Yeah. Just to clarify that. Well, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's been a beautiful thing, and and I also think it's been uh, caused problems for us. Like you how know? so? Well, I think it's, I think I've, it's probably, you know, like I've probably regressed a lot. You know, I, I went to college in California, even though I'm from New Jersey, and. I think that that was in some ways one of the best times of my life. I mm. I was I sort of creating myself anew. I was painting. I had a girlfriend. My paintings were quite powerful at that time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Even though I was only 23 years old, they're still some of the best work I've done. And um, I remember being, you know, struggling with depression at times and also really 
being really expressed and having tons of friends and doing tons of cool things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started a diner. At, at, I went to Stanford and I started a diner called Nick's Diner that delivered food overnight. Mm-hmm. And it got more and more popular until eventually they they did it right up in the San Francisco Chronicle. And then I got a call from the university and they said, um, do you guys have like a insurance or a business license or anything like that? <laughs> and I had to meet with the provost who at the time was Condoleezza Rice. And uh, she was really cool. She said, you know, hey, you got to shut this diner down. We'll help you get one set up off campus if you want. But So I was like really, I was really yeah. out there and I yeah. did a lot of cool things. And then I moved back to the East Coast and, you know, definitely got enmeshed with my parents and it was inhibiting. And uh, we're really, you know, we probably have a lot of codependencies, my parents and I. So, um, like, what does what does that mean to you? I feel like a lot of people don't even understand what the word codependent means. Right. Like, well, for instance, like, I think I do a lot of things to please them, and they um, uh, they give me a lot of advice, and I give them a lot of advice, and try to watch out for them in certain ways, like making them go to yoga and. <laughs> Watch, watching what they eat so we're sort of like yeah. you know it's like I read this thing in that Faulkner book Absalom Absalom have you ever re- heard of this novel it's where he talks this passage he talks about like that people are like uh, marionettes and all our strings are tied to all the other strings of all the marionettes so like he was referring to a southern family that was like really you know no one could do anything on their own and every time you move all the other marionettes go like that so you're like kind of in this like locked together like a chain gang and uh it feels partly that way and it's very hard to let go of because i i love them so much they love me so much and there's such a warmth between us and between them and my sisters and brother and but going back to um you said that you lose yourself yeah so are you saying you're losing yourself through painting or can you be more specific about what ways you lose yourself? I lost myself through the codependent relationship yeah. with my family. Yeah. Oh. <clears throat> yeah, it's like um it's like I have often thought, well, what if I moved away? went to Europe or India or Africa or something and uh, just had a whole new life. And the times that I have traveled far away from home, you know, where I've been in India or Nepal, um, I have felt like myself. There's, it's just you and where you are and where you are is unfamiliar. So the only thing that's familiar about where you are is is you and and then you feel a kind of excitement about being in the driver's seat of the car that is you but are you saying basically you would have it it seems like you keep using the same thing of for you like you would not be in the same location you are Mm -hmm. if it if you didn't have the codependence if I didn't have the codependence? It seems like that's what you're saying. I think that <clears throat> probably one thing keeping me on the East Coast is that I'm, I grew up there and I live in East Hampton now, where I, which is my grandparents had, had, a have, had a house out there, which now belongs to my parents, and I live 10 minutes from there. And um, So I, since I've been out here in California, people keep saying, are you going to move here? Are you going to move here? And if you look at it on paper, it's for someone like me it seems like a better place out here I like hiking in the mountains I like surfing I think the art world is more there's more opportunity for creative people out here to make a living and to to have their work seen and heard so the weather's nice year round I I went to school in California so why do I doggedly hold on to the east coast I, I don't know yeah, but there's this whole, um, I mean, I, I get that you're using this kind of as like, uh, well, you're making it about the location, but I, have you ever heard the phrase like, wherever you go, there you are? Yeah, I said it to you right? about a half hour ago. Yeah, <laughs> so, <I've heard laughs> so you've it. heard it before. <laughs> um, so 
saying that it's like well then we i mean it's easy to use that as the external excuse like oh i'd move to this place if i weren't codependent but like deeper than that right it's like how else are you holding back from what you really are or who you feel you really are because of these ties like because you know i think a lot of people would argue like staying close to your family or whatever like you know i mean it also has payoffs like you said you really love your family you're very close to them like these are all like good things as well right and i think i just want to clarify the difference between that and codependence right the codependence is the sacrifice of yourself for another uh-huh. to remain feeling attached hmm. the problem is is we oftentimes confuse codependence with love but the sacrificing of yourself to remain feeling attached is in healthy love it's actually manipulation because then the other person if they're not knowing that if they don't know at that moment that you're sacrificing yourself like it's creating a false attachment it's not even it's connection to a certain degree but it's not even that deeper connection that you desire with that person but then it gets all confused right because it's like the surface layer it looks the certain way like okay i'm staying here for my family and i'm doing something good even though like we're using this as the 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 example right but then deep down like if you're disconnecting with yourself and you're probably disconnecting in other ways and like sacrificing who you are your desires for the benefit of these people because you think they want that yet you don't even really know, right? Like you're not really giving it a chance for the relationship to develop in a whole new way. Like in essence, we're keeping that dynamic. Like when we do stuff like that, we're keeping it in the same dimension. Not to say that your parents wouldn't be happy. At like, of course, they'd probably be sad if, if you left and moved. However, how would the relationship evolve with your parents if you were living more whole and like what you felt was like your centered truth like i'm interesting you know i i don't know yeah i I mean when i when i went to school out here sometimes there was one year where i I think i went almost a year without seeing them and um you know i I don't remember the i don't remember how it felt in relationship with them at that point um I think I was really, my family was the girlfriend who I had at the time. We were a family of two. And um, I think I use it as an excuse to not do things. Yeah, all of a sudden the way way that you, and this is not true for everyone, I'm talking about you specifically, right? Because you're here in front Mm -hmm. of me. But the way you just described, you're with your girlfriend, a family of two. God, I just... Okay, I just got this hit that like being there with them keeps you in that dynamic that you don't have to create your own family. Totally. Although you could come here and still like, you know, if you don't really heal the inners, (laughs) you come here and still like play out that whole dynamic and have it end up exactly the same as we know people who are doing that, right? Mm -hmm. but, uh, you know, the other thing I just wanted to say is that um, the stuff is like progressive, right? So it's hard to compare ourselves to when we were in our like early 20s and doing this. You know, it's like we're at a very different point. This, all those patterns have been ingrained deeper and deeper. So mm-hmm. it's like uh, they're just going to be more extreme. Like it's, it's you, you can't really compare it to that. You're not, you're not 22 anymore, you know, like the way you react to things is going to be different, mm-hmm. you know? Um, I just want to clarify that, yes, we're using moving as the example, but then really it's about like what's beneath that, you know? It sounds like you don't really think it's working for you. I think a lot of it's a Peter Pan uh, complex, you know, still wanting to be um, a child. Well, what do you like about that? I don't know if I like it per se. I do feel that. Um, it's like going back into something which is meaningful which is my childhood and I have noticed that in the conversations I have with my parents it's it's really not like um, it's very much like we're equals now we just have a very close relationship a lot of time I'll, I'll read my dad's scripts and give him notes on his scripts 
or I'll talk to them about things that I think they could do that would be healthier. So in some ways, it's not like this parent-child relationship. It's a very pure relationship. And these are the people that know me the best, and I know them the best. So there's a certain depth which um, is possible and feels really meaningful. And Even though you said that you feel internally stifled, so I'm just curious of yeah. how well do they know you if you're stifling a part of yourself around them? They know what they've seen. Mm-hmm. I guess I'm trying to get their love. Maybe it, I, you, you know, I had their love tremendously when I was born. I was the oldest child. I was a boy. I was the first, their first child, and both sets of grandparents. I was the first grandchild, and um, so I was like the baby Jesus in terms of my arrival. And then within you know a few years, there were like a million cousins, and I had siblings, and I guess attention got drawn away from me and might have been tough for me to handle. Um, so I play out this pattern of uh, not getting attention and also getting attention. I've always been someone who's able to get attention and then I almost voluntarily lose it somehow to play small like you mentioned to play small before yeah so, right like so, not too much attention yeah so you've heard, you've heard of the repetition compulsion right it's a freudian concept go ahead and you can go ahead and explain that okay well you, you know want. we say what you know we play our childhood patterns everyone's familiar with that concept of like childhood trauma and we replay it as our as adults what i learned recently in a group therapy context was why we do this and the most obvious reason is we we do it again so we could fix it go back in and fix it because now we're bigger and stronger and we can do that. Then there's um, then there's actually um, a more interesting reason beneath that, which is that as children, sometimes we're not permitted to feel those feelings. And so what happens is if we replay that experience as an adult and it's painful, and then we can feel the pain or the anger, then what that does is it validates our feelings as a child. So what therapists have found is that the repetition compulsion, though maybe self-destructive, that it's almost people find it more of a payoff to have their feelings validated than to actually have their lives progress in a healthy way. So it's such a strong uh, compulsion. And so I guess I'm, the way I'm trying to validate feelings so my therapist, as we were, we were talking before, she does psychodrama, which is all about going into your childhood, uh-huh. allowing those feelings to come up, really feeling them, and then allowing for a new experience. So you have the complete embodiment of experiencing the feeling that you're repressing, and then have the experience of feeling something different around it. Uh-huh. I find it so efficient. But hearing that, you know, I... I um, I, I didn't know this concept that you, you spoke of. And I was like, oh, that, that makes complete sense of why that kind of therapy. Like for me, I was like, this is like it did so much in such a short amount of time. Yeah, uh, that makes sense because it's like, in essence, the inner child is being heard. So I'm just wondering what kind of ways do you think that you can kind of maybe validate those old feelings in a more direct way versus like the indirect way? Because you're stuck in the cycle that you said that you don't like. And you're aware you're getting a payoff. Mm-hmm. And so I get that you have all this awareness around it. But then, like you just said, it means more to you to have those old feelings validated. So how do you think that you could help yourself in that way? Well, I've heard different ideas about how to deal with this. One concept that's pretty common in our culture these days is taking a leap of faith, jumping into the unknown. Um, being being fearless, being brave, taking chances. And I think this is very, like, people say things like that, and it sounds really good in an abstract way, yeah. but what does that look like specifically? Because I think that's where everyone gets jammed up. That is where everyone gets jammed up. Well, I think there's certain things that we can do. I, I personally believe in the incremental uh, nature of uh, progress. Now, perhaps I believe in it because that's a way of being able to stay where you are. What do you mean the incremental nature of progress? Taking baby steps. 
So I think that I think that when people when we travel or we learn to surf or let's say we do karaoke, uh-huh. we learn to play an instrument, take take chances that are within our capability. So are you saying that taking the leap of faith like you just said but taking it in baby steps? Is that what you mean for yourself? I guess it sounds kind of yeah, I mean it's, I'm just asking you. Yes, it is know. what I'm saying. So okay. so in a way it's like okay, well the leap of faith the leap of faith may only be effective if it's a leap of faith. My strategy has been somewhat successful is that if the leap of faith is in direction X and you start taking baby steps toward X after a few months or so you've maybe taken half that leap of faith toward X and you've been able to do it from a grounded place because you haven't asked more than you were capable of. Because what I'm getting kind of is that works for you, right? But then maybe to be specific around mm. what the leap of faith is. So then it's like that's your focus. Yeah. Well, you know, that was one of the things about ayahuasca that was cool for me. But we're not doing that right now. <laughs> okay. What about right now? Right now? <laughs> Today, yeah. Maybe I don't know. Forward. Like, I guess it would be doing things that are uncomfortable or unfamiliar. And I really don't want to mm-hmm. do that. So I probably won't. Okay. Um, so, well, if you don't want to do that, what is something that you think would help you that you'd be willing to do? I wouldn't. I would like to play a gig, a local gig, to play my songs. I think that would be cool. It's always, being on stage is always a good uh, good thing for my energy. And, um, uh, I don't know though. I, I don't have any answers for this right now. Playing a gig, being in nature. It's funny what I'm getting from you. Actually, we all have responsibilities. Even my cat has responsibilities. She has to clean herself and feed herself and go to the bathroom every day. Like she still does things, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes and has to sit through her own discomfort, you know. But the message I kept getting was maybe that's the focus for you is just is to play. Maybe what's holding you back is that you don't really like let yourself play. Like when you play the gig, are you fully embodied in it and really allow it for yourself? Like, you know, to be present in that. Or are you just like doing the gig? Like maybe that's oh, no, the I focus. Do. When I play, I play. But, but I thought but in about, all areas. I thought about play a lot, and because uh, it came up in the context of the um, this thing we're doing called evolutionary dialogue, where we're trying to enter a we space as individuals and maintain our individuality in a we space, sort of uh-huh. like the tribal space from the old days. And this was related to the ayahuasca and the meditation. So one of the things that came up is is that there is, um, I guess, in a way, you're relinquishing the ego to enter the, the we space. But if you think about play, what is almost every thing of play is always you're playing with the ego, right? So every game you're trying to win. And when kids play, they're really, they're really saying, you know, I'm the king, I'm the queen, you can't go there. And when we play with each other and we fuck around, or like the dozens, you know, like the... Uh, the, you know what the dozens is? It's like, I took this class at Stanford. It was uh, African-American English. It was mm-hmm. called Ebonics. And it was like, they talked about the dozens. Your mother's got a wooden leg with a kickstand, right? So, you know, so basically you're insulting each other and you're doing it in the context of a way that is actually attacking the ego in a safe context because it's the container of the game. And by virtue of that, you're, you're cutting, you're letting the ego evaporate just a little bit. So play... People think, you know, play is just, I don't know, I'm going to go outside and like roll around on the ground and shit. It's like more actually play is more about winning. And it's about winning in a way where we can let go of needing to win. So that's what's so beautiful about sports. And that's what's so cool about getting up on stage and doing a gig is you can be arrogant. You can step into your personal James Brown and get all cocky or like Mick Jagger. Mm-hmm. And it's you're playing with the ego. That's that is the content of the play just thought i'd say that i love that yeah. nick thank you so much okay welcome i'm gonna play today are you gonna play uh yeah maybe or maybe i'll you know i'll, I'll, read, I'll read about the football games that's <laughs> that gets me in touch with that all right nick thank you okay of course nick is a man who clearly has a lot of heightened self-awareness 
Now, we all know a lot of self-awareness can get us absolutely nowhere. <laughs> yes, self-awareness is definitely the first key to healing. It goes awareness, then we go into acceptance, and then we come into a new way of acting. However, here's the tricky part. There are two levels to awareness. First, we have the intellectual awareness, which Nick definitely has. He's very aware of the codependent dynamics with his family. He's aware of where he's disconnected. He's done a lot of work on himself, and, and you could see that so blatantly. Now, I think his block is in the emotional awareness. And what I mean by that is, for example, when he mentioned that he was sad, when he finally owned it for a second, he actually completely disconnected with how that felt inside his body. If you notice, he almost sounded a little bit happy when he said he was sad versus really owning how that felt. I think that key piece of the emotional awareness about what happens for him would help transition everything into kind of a new way of being. So what I mean, for example, is when he mentions the codependent dynamics he has with his family and what's he, what he kind of gets off of being stuck in that, if he really starts to sit with how that feels inside his body, it might actually motivate things uh, to change in some capacity. Now, as far as his journey with ayahuasca goes, what I think it seemed like, yes, it helped him as far as feel more connected with his work. However, what I think would have been more beneficial for him is if he had looked at and gone in with the intention of looking at his deeper inhibitions as far as why are these things there and his deeper trauma. Uh, we all know that trauma can be stored in the DNA, as I mentioned. And, and he mentioned that there was a little bit of depression and some heaviness that laid on his uh, father's side of the family. And, and the thing is, is that that's not just with that generation, but also the generation before that and the generation before that. And that's what we carry in our bodies in this current lifetime. So he's not only walking with his current pain, but he's all, also walking with pain from his family history. I think that if he had gone into his journey of ayahuasca with that intention, I think his inhibitions would have naturally been released and he would have gotten the connection that he so deeply desired in not only in his work, but in his life that he wants. Because we would have been fixing the thing that actually needed to be fixed, the deeper level. I'm Jacqueline, the therapist. Thank you so much for listening.